People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us, too, as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yost, and we're your hosts. We went through so much pain. Today we are continuing our examination of an aspect of the criminal justice system that is often overlooked, the mistreatment of women of color. We will continue to explore the stories of several women who have suffered injustice at the hands of law enforcement. And take a critical look at how police treat African-American women and oftentimes simply ignore them. An in-depth series of episodes that will reveal a deeply flawed system we're calling Hidden Victims. All this coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. So the case and the family we talked to today is um, about a man named Anthony Anderson, who was killed by police in 2011, I believe. Sean, do you you remember that case? Uh, he was uh, a man who lived in West Baltimore, was walking across a vacant lot, and then a police officer came up from behind him and put what was called a suplex yeah. move. Describe cool. what that means. So the officer came from behind and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm having, I'm, I'm, I remember that he did a- execute this suplex move, meaning he t- he grabbed him basically lifted around him the waist and lifted him up and basically lifted him up and, and flung him. him, not over his head really. When you think about right, it, right, right. I mean, it's uh, it's almost like um, almost like he's bringing he's flinging him up, he's bringing him up in the air and bringing him down uh, in a way that is incredibly violent to the point where it. I believe ruptured his spleen. Absolutely, yep. broke, broke his ribs. ribs. Broke yeah. several ribs. Um, um, this is this is to, in order for that type of those types of injuries to to occur. Um, there's an, a tremendous amount of force that this man was was right. thrown to the ground with. But that's a move that's usually used in professional it's wrestling, absolutely. right? Isn't, but, isn't that actually illegal? I mean, that is not something. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Sean. Is that academy? something that you think a police officer would would be part of their arsenal, say, so to speak, of moves? Well, they. I mean, you know, so the the narrative that we hear about training is that you know once you get on the street, you forget all the training, you forget what they what they tell you, and you kind of go out there and and and, and handle it the best way you can um, but a lot of these guys look I'm not gonna a lot of these guys are so pumped up on adrenaline and other things that they're not worried about whether or not it's illegal legal or illegal to uh, suplex somebody on concrete um, so yeah you know. and it turned out that what the officer the probable cause for doing this was not that he thought he had a gun or they had a weapon or that he had just hurt somebody but rather that he thought he had a pill that was it. Right. I mean, nothing was ever proven, but that was it. I mean, how do you explain that? You can't. I mean, 
I remember the initial story. I thought um, that he was actually speared, um, like in a football move, like tackle. Right, right. But I found out later that it was actually this really violent move where he was thrown to the ground, um, you know, basically from the height of the police officer. Because you're talking about bringing him up off right. the ground, off his off his feet, and then slamming him down yeah. um, onto the ground. So. Um, there is no justification I can see. Now, Tay, this series is is about women and their interactions, but we right. chose this story uh, because it, it sort of shows how women deal with the consequences in their family. And when we spoke to Anthony Anderson's mm-hmm. son, it became quite apparent that his wife was helping him deal with his pain. And that's why we're talking about it, right? Right. Um, when we spoke with Anthony Anderson's son, the pain was still incredibly obvious. Um, his son actually looks a great deal like him. And one of the problems is, is that when his son looks in the mirror, he sees his father's face reflected back at him. His wife, Nicole, when we were interviewing them, they were holding hands almost the entire time. And Nicole talked about how she did her best to share and bear the pain that her husband was going through. And this pain affected her very deeply because not only did she have to uphold her husband, but during this period of time where her, her and her husband were going through all this stress, her daughter was born and died just moments afterwards. So this family suffered a double loss. Not only did he lose his father, but the stress and pain she believes contributed to the loss of the baby girl she was carrying. And so coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation, we'll talk to the son of Anthony Anderson and his wife and how the death of their father at the hands of police has affected their lives and their love. When you ask Marcus Pettifor and his wife, Nicole, about his father, Anthony Anderson, she breaks into a song of love. Don't tell me it's over now. I said don't tell me it's over now. Please don't tell me it's over now cause God's got all planned out that's basically how (laughs) it's great The words and music that flow with emotion, a remembrance of Marcus's father, Anthony Anderson, who died at the hands of police. It's one of the first things you notice when you visit the couple's Northeast apartment, how the tragedy of his death has drawn them both closer. Being the way that he was, and (laughs) thank God giving me the son that he gave me, which ended up being my husband, I love him through his son. I get to know him and acknowledge him through his son. They sit on the couch side by side, hand in hand, and discuss how tight their bond has grown. My father-in-law got killed September the 21st, 2012. He never even really had a time to mourn his father because two weeks later my daughter was murdered. So he had to kind of put his pain on the side to try to comfort me with my pain. 
my daughter was only 16 years old and they took her away from here. We lost our daughter. I lost my daughter. And I lost my father-in-law. All in the same year. Within months of each other. And this man, as great as he is, how much he loves me, he put all of that on the side for me to help me with my pain as much as he was hurting as much anger as he had because of the way his father was taken away from me you can't ask for a greater a better friend lover companion than Marcus Pettiford which is why the pain of the death of Marcus's father Anthony Anderson at the hands of police is shared so intimately and why the events leading up to his encounter with police and his death are so inexplicable. Like many of the cases we've discussed, Anderson's death occurred not after a shooting or a harrowing chase, but when a narcotics officer spotted him walking across a vacant lot. He was preparing for my, my then uh, two-year-old uh, niece's uh, birthday party, which was uh, supposed to take place uh, the very next day. He had just came back from Walmart, running around all morning with my sister. And he was just bringing in bags at a time. You know, he had to go to five different stores, uh, getting this and getting that. And his girlfriend uh, wanted wanted something from the store. So he said, um, hold on, give me a minute. But she was very hasty. She was impatient about the situation. So she basically forced him to go to the store. So he went So he went to the store, and as he was coming back across the lot, I, um, he had shook fives with uh, one, one, of his, um, one of his acquaintances. And as he got near my grandmother's house, they crept up behind him, they say that they say, uh, halt, police, stop. But he was on a cane because he, 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 was, he was preparing for, um, for uh, bunion surgery. So uh, they told everyone that he tried to run, which was very hard for someone on a cane anyway, and especially having to go through um, something that has to do with um, your feet. I, I, I don't believe that for one minute that, he, you know, he was uh, running from them. So uh, they said they claimed that they saw a hand-to-hand transaction between him and uh, the acquaintance. But they never found anyone, you know, they so-called did field interviews, and they never found anyone that could attest to their story. So um, as they crept behind them across the parking lot, one of the officers um hoisted him over over uh, his head and uh, slammed him on his neck and uh, head area. So right right then and there, he was already he he was he was already lucid, you know. He was already starting to die, you know. So uh, they they held him up. 
and one of the other officers basically bent him over his knee to hold the uh, to hold him up straight. Since the encounter occurred so close to Anderson's family home, his relatives were on the scene as Anthony lay dying. And my grandmother, my brother, and um, my aunt, they, they all come rushing out the house because I guess maybe somebody saw what was going on. They knew, him, knew my father, so they ran and told, told my grandmother what was going on. So they all came out there. And so um, my grandmother's like, what are you doing to my son? The exact words from one of the police officers, he said, back up before we do this to you. Now, my grandma was an old, feeble, feeble woman, and it, and it, not only her age, which was plaguing her, but she also had cancer, and so she was going through remissions with her treatments and things like that. So she was already very weak. It, it took her a while to even get two doors up to the park a lot where where they were at. And that's when they called Marcus at work and when he learned his father was dead. Everything happens for a reason because at the time I, I, w- I was at work and I know if I, if, if I was there, I, I probably would have died next to that lot too because I wasn't going to let them talk to my grandmother like that. You know, I wasn't going to let them manhandle my father like that either. Now, I got the phone call my sister was hysterical. She said, they killed daddy, they killed daddy. I said, whoa, whoa, calm down, calm down. What, what's going on? Um, so I told my manager, I said, I said, I need to, I need to uh, take this phone call because I don't know what's going on. So um, I went outside and she was like, they killed daddy. I said, who? I said, how do you know he died? How, how do you know he's dead? And they were like, we saw it. And she was like, the police, the police. Uh, as all she kept saying, she but she wouldn't tell me the whole story. She like she just kept saying the police, the police, the police. So I immediately broke down. So I was like, and I was just sitting there, and you know, all all the, uh, my fellow employees came out there. You know, they they saw me distraught. They said, "What's going on?" So I I could talk, and my voice was gone. So they was like, look, my manager was like, look, you need to go home. And you're not going to be able to focus. I was going to stay until the end of my shift. But they, but they kind of begged me and pleaded with me, like, look, go home, take care of it. The grief for Marcus was overwhelming, only heightened by the litany of injuries his father sustained. The coroner's office they uh, deemed it a homicide. You know, it, it was no ifs, ands, or buts about the situation. It was it wasn't accidental. Um, 
you know, homicide or anything like that. It was homicide, you know, and so they tried to administer, um, I forgot what it's, it, it, it begins with an M, Narkin or something in the system Narcan. because, yeah, Narkin. So they tried to say that uh, he was overdosing on some on some bad drugs and that and that he was faking uh fake he 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 was faking his eyes were rolling in the back of his head he he was slowly dying so and, and um while he was on the ground they were kicking him and stomping him that's how he uh suffered those um broken ribs and uh he had six broken ribs he had blood force trauma to his head and neck area and um a ruptured spleen a ruptured spleen you know now for them to say oh we didn't put off put our hands if you know we didn't beat them up or anything like that how does one get a ruptured spleen and six broken ribs you can't account for that but like other victims who die at the hands of police his hope there would be some sort of justice for his father were soon dashed first i wanted to see tr justice i wanted to see Every last one of those officers go to jail for the rest of their life. Because, let, and I explained this to um, Greg Bernstein, who was the state's attorney at the time. We had a pri private uh, chamber meeting. Um, and he basically laughed at my family's face and said, I'm not prosecuting my officers. Uh, they were well within the guidelines of wh whatever, whatever your father got. You know, so it, it, it took a a couple of people to restrain me because I was on my way across that table. You know, and, and I said, well, how would you feel if one of your officers that you're trying to protect were to kill one of your family members? Would you, would you prosecute them then? You don't care because it's not happening to your family. So you don't give a damn. Or, better yet, I'm going to give you a better scenario. What if I was to take one of your officers out? You would make sure you throw me under the jail and melt the key. And so overwhelmed with grief and bitter disappointment, Marcus tried to heal. But it wasn't easy. So he turned to the one person who could actually share his sorrow, his wife. And in doing so, his pain became hers. It affected me so deep because of the simple fact is when you're in a relationship, when you're in a marriage, you become one. So his pain became my pain. And... No matter what I did, no matter what I said, no matter how strong I tried to be for him, he could still see that his pain was affecting me as well. And we went through so much pain. We did the marches. We did the speeches. You know, anything that we could do to try to get justice for my father-in-law, we did. Mm -hmm. And I was with it. 
I didn't care that my feet was hurting. I didn't care that it was hot. I didn't care that I was hungry. All I wanted is for my husband to get some kind of satisfaction over what happened to him. You ruined an entire family. An entire community to me because what he gave to that community, the love and the happiness and the joy that he afflicted upon those people around it, you took that from them as well. A grief that only intensified for the couple when shortly after Anthony's death, they lost their daughter only moments after she was born. My husband doesn't have any children at all. It was a planned pregnancy and I wanted another baby before I even met my husband. But that made it that much more special to be with a man who wanted the same exact thing that I wanted. For us to bring a love child into this world that would carry on generations of love that came before him or her did. We actually found out that it was a little girl. You know, she was born, she lived for five minutes, and then she passed away. We gave her a name. Her name was Natasha. And Natasha, she loved her daddy. When he came in from work, he would talk to my stomach and she would move around and everything. And he'd be like, hey, what are you in there doing? And it's like she heard her daddy. She knew that that was her daddy. And when he passed away, it was such an emptiness. It was such a sadness. And I've always known from experience that your baby feels what you feel. And she felt that emptiness. Like, Mommy, Daddy, your whole mood changed. You still talk to me, but I don't feel the happiness, the love that I used to feel when you used to talk to me. And no matter how hard we tried to actually continue on with that love and with that spirit, it was really difficult because he was a part of us. When she passed away, she died with her hand over her heart. And it was like, she was telling me, Mommy, I'm okay. I'm going home now. I did what I was supposed to do, which was come here and to prepare you that I was going home with Granddad. That was the worst experience of my life. To have two people that I loved, and it didn't matter that I never met him. I loved him because that was my family. And I felt as though you robbed me of the chance to be with my family. You robbed me of the opportunity for my family to get to see the other part of my family. You destroyed us.
For Marcus, though, one encounter with his dad gives him some solace. An exchange he holds on to as a memento of their bond. It was, a, it was a night where I came home from work, and I didn't have to work the next day, so I kind of stayed out late. So I was, I, um, I was in the house. I said, hmm, I, I'm going to go see my pop. So I went down there, and uh, just what happened is that um, a couple of my other siblings were down there at the time, so we decided to, uh, to play spades. So we were down there uh, just having a, a grand time. Uh, laughing and joking and playing, things like that, nitpicking with each other. So as we were sitting there joking and laughing, um, my siblings disappeared one by one, you know, went home, things like that. They had to go to work the next day. And so it was just me and him left. And, you know, we were talking. He said, he said, man, look. I said, now you know your siblings be talking about you and stuff like that, just like they talk about me. I said, but I don't care. Forget about them. Man, I don't want any of their banter, you know, to downplay your spirit or anything like that. Don't don't allow them to bring your spirit down. Keep that because I see a lot of me in you, and I want you to continue to keep that. And so I said, I said, yeah, Pop, I got you. So it was right before I, um, before I darted the door. And he called me back down the street because I had just got a few doors down at the corner. He called me back down the street. He said, he said, man, look, I'm going to tell you like this. Regardless of what anybody say, he said, look, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the man that you have become. And I'm going to let you know a little secret. He said, you my number one son. You know, so um, that, that was, we actually became closer that night. You know, just just with just with that. And as they hold on to memories of Anthony, they hope that their love of each other will in a sense keep him alive. He carries on to the day that he knows for a fact that that man loved him and he was proud of him and that he was going to be there for him. Regardless, he might not be here physically, but he's here spiritually. He's yeah. always been here, and he's always going to be here, no matter what. I mean, I'm I'm healed from it, but it's it's just kind of tough, you know, to wake up every morning and and and, and see his face all over again. So I never really will get a chance to. Uh, forget, for lack of uh, better words, because uh, uh, the mirror is a constant reminder. I mean, to get rid of all mirrors in the world for me not to, uh, you know, get emotional every time, you know, or think of him every time I see my reflection. What did I do? What did I say? What did I want? Was it too much? 
Thank you for joining us for the third part of our series, Hidden Victims, an exploration of how women of color suffer at the hands of law enforcement. We'd like to thank our guest, Marcus and Nicole Pettiford. Please subscribe to our podcast or contact us on Facebook and Twitter. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Stephen Janis, Sean Yost, and myself for A Spectrum Productions. Truth and Reconciliation is engineered by Sienna Greaves. Be sure to join us for our next installment of our series, Hidden Victims. I'm Taya Graham, and thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. Truth and Reconciliation.